And let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, as we open Your Word this morning, Father, I pray that it would speak to us in a powerful way. Father God, I pray that it would open the hearts and minds of Your people this morning. And Lord, we deal with uh, the issue of doubt and second-guessing. And Lord, our world is full of that. We doubt who You are. Though we know God, we do not believe you many times and what your word has to say so lord illuminate the hearts of your people i pray that we would come uh, humbly before your word this morning and that through it we may have life in your son the son of god christ jesus we pray amen we come to week three in our series that we've entitled deliverance and uh, this has been it's going to be a four-week series that we've been doing, looking at the last two chapters of the Gospel of John. And we've now been in uh, the Gospel of John. We'll finish up next week, and that will put us at the one-year mark in this Gospel. And I hope that you have a greater understanding about this Gospel of John and what it means uh, to you. Now, in this series of deliverance, we're looking at John chapter 20 and 21. And today we come to the life of Thomas. Many of you know of this guy by just knowing that he was one who doubted. But there's far more than we can understand about this disciple Thomas. Because today we're going to learn that just like Thomas, you and I suffer from the issue of doubt. Now, three weeks ago, we started this series by looking at Jesus and what he did on the cross. And because of the empty tomb, that we can have deliverance from our suffering because of what Christ did on the cross, we had victory over any amount of suffering that we would face in this world. And then on Easter Sunday, we talked about the deliverance that we have from our sin. Because of the empty tomb, we now have victory over the sin that plagues us in our life. And today we'll look at our second guessing. And next week we'll look at Peter's restoration and we'll learn how we can have deliverance from our shame. So today we look at this idea or this question of doubt. You know, as we look at last week's things that took place, the temptation to doubt about the goodness of God and the temptation to doubt about whether there is a God comes quick to our hearts even as believers when we hear of a madman running around a college campus and killing over 30 people. It's not hard to look at an incident like that and say, where is your good God on the campus of Virginia Tech. And we begin to have people say, I don't know how you can believe in a God when bad things happen to good people. And they say, you know what, I can't believe His Word. I can't believe the goodness of God. And we start to ask questions that start with the word, why? Why do we face trouble? Why do we endure pain? Why do we have so many frustrations? Why do we struggle with this stuff called sin? Why so many hardships? Why so much discontentment in the world? If there's a God and He is as good as He says He is, then why is it all these bad things seem to be facing us? We live in a world that doubts God. And many times we as Christians find ourselves falling in line with what the world says about our God. They say, if there is a God, He's just some big killjoy up in heaven who really doesn't care about us. We begin to doubt it. We doubt the claims of Jesus Christ and His Word. Now, it seems that all of us have a desire to understand, to secure a reason and a rationale for our faith. And I will tell you that as humans, we go to great lengths to try to answer the question, why? But so many times, if you're like me, the answer that I'm looking for remains elusive to some of the most essential questions that haunt my life. I will tell you that a couple of years ago, I became a doubter in many ways. I used to be the most optimistic individual you know. But some things happened in my life that I just began to say, you know what, maybe things aren't going to work out as good as I think that they should. And I've become kind of a pessimist, if you will, in some ways. There's still optimism in me. I still try to look for that silver lining. There's some gray in that cloud now, more than there was before. But I know many here today have questions, 
questions that they want answered, questions that they have that they find doubt eating and eroding away at their hearts. We have people that have lost young children in this church, little babies, miscarriages, and the question they ask is, where is the child that I lost? We have some here, some teenagers and college kids and even some adults who ask the question, why am I here on earth? What significance do I have here for God or for even humankind? Others are asking the question, maybe as they're growing older, what if I would have chosen another road, whether it was another person to marry, whether it was another career, whether it was a different faith? We find ourselves asking questions to these issues of life. And what begins to happen is we suffer from this spiritual confusion. And I will tell you what that confusion is, is the word doubt. When doubt comes into our lives, things that were strong and secure now are just like a house of cards on a windy day. And there's no question that we begin to feel alone. Now, many Christians have felt this feeling of doubt. David, Solomon, Job, Jeremiah, Moses, all doubted. And their words are listed in the Scriptures. We know that great men of the faith, reformers like Luther and Calvin, had seasons of doubt in their life. Charles Spurgeon dealt with doubt, and yet he led a large church in Great Britain over a hundred years ago, and he had a life of doubt. Missionary David Livingston, who did great things in far-off lands, struggled with his belief. In Jesus Christ. You say, how could you? He went to faraway lands to preach the gospel. And he still doubted. Even Billy Graham, the great Billy Graham, he said, went two years in the mid-70s struggling with the issue of doubt in regards to his Christian faith. I don't know about you, but it seems like each and every one of us as Christians, as strong as our faith may be, we find ourselves at one time or another doubting this whole thing about the Christian life. We start asking, is Christ all that He says that He is? Is Christ all that He advertised? Is Christ able to be depended upon when trouble comes? Will Christ be able to come through? You know, the Greek words for the word doubt, our English word doubt, there's two of them, and they both carry the idea of complete uncertainty. They give a connotation of being uh, unsettled, of lacking a firm foundation. It has been said that doubt has been the growing pains of an eager and seeking spirit. Now, all that I've said about doubt, please understand, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is an opportunity to have faith. The enemy or the arch enemy, if you will, of faith is unbelief. And unbelief is different than doubt. Unbelief is a refusal to consider what is before you. Doubt, on the other hand, is a questioning heart not being able to understand or put everything together. It has been said that doubt is like us standing at the edge of a cliff, stretching, trying to understand what is beyond us. So today, in John chapter 20, we look to a man who struggled, just like many of us do, with this issue of doubt. But how do we see doubt manifest itself in our own lives? I want to give you, very quickly, five F's. That uh, looks like my report card in high school. Five F's. My mom's weeping somewhere right now. Five F's. Five areas where we struggle with doubt. The first one, write this somewhere on the side of your outline. It's not in the space. This is a little extra credit for you. Five areas of doubt. First of all, we doubt our feelings. I don't know about you, but there have been numerous times where an emotion has come over me or something has happened and I begin to say, should I be feeling this way? Should I be reacting this way? Maybe I should have been quieter. or Maybe I should have showed more love or patience. We doubt our feelings, don't we? Those are things that we see. We doubt the future. I don't know about you, but this one seems to be one of great struggle for me. I look into the future and I begin to say, am I going to be able to take care of this? How are uh, these issues going to be resolved? How is that going to be taken care of? Am I on the right path? Am I doing what I'm supposed to? Are we going to be able to do the things we want in the future? Where is the church going to be in the future? Where is so-and-so going to be? And I worry about the future. I doubt. 
Finances is another one. It comes in, we say, you know what? Are we going to be able to take care of our needs? Is there going to be enough money in the bank account? Do we have enough money for Junior to go to college? Do we have enough money for retirement? What happens if something medically goes wrong with us and we have to pay out a lot of money with insurance? Finances become an issue where we doubt. Families. We doubt whether our marriages will last. We doubt whether our spouse will change. We doubt whether our kids will ever pull it together and be of great value to this world. We doubt many times in regards to our families. But above all those is the issue of doubting when it comes to our faith. And that's what I want to talk about this morning because you can doubt about the future. You can doubt about finances. You can doubt about your family. But I will tell you, none of those will get resolved until you get your faith locked in to a doubt-free life. Until you move away from those doubts of your faith and move to Christ as we see Thomas do in our text today, we'll never resolve those other issues of doubt. So let's look at uh, three things we see this morning. Because, you know, when we go and we look at our faith, the world tells us to doubt what you're learning today. When you go to the uh, water cooler tomorrow or go to your locker, the people will say, if you were to say, I went to church yesterday and this is what I heard about, they'll say, come on, you don't actually believe that to be true, do you? You can't believe that. There's no way that that Jesus actually is who he said he was. You're believing a fairy tale and they begin to pour out doubts into our minds. How are we to deal with that? How are we to engage in that kind of warfare? I found a great story from a true story. It's a true story from a high school near Boston that happened a couple years ago. Tom's high school teacher stood up in front of the class and said, the resurrection is nothing but a myth. He announced this just a few days before the Easter break. I will tell you, class, Jesus not only didn't rise from the grave, but there's no God in heaven who would allow his son to be crucified in the first place. Tom stood up and protested, Sir, I believe in God, and I believe in the resurrection of Christ. The teacher retorted back, Tom, you can't believe. You can believe what you wish, of course. However, the real world excludes all possibilities of miracles like the resurrection. Tom, the resurrection is a scientific impossibility. No one who believes in miracles can also respect science. You heard that before? You heard people say that? So the teacher goes to the class. He says, I want to propose a science class. Let's propose an experiment. And he goes to the refrigerator and he takes out a raw egg. And he says, class, I'm going to drop this egg from my hand. And it's going to hit the floor. The reason why it's going to hit the floor is because the law of gravity will take it to the ground. And because of the inertia of the egg, it is going to hit the ground. It's going to shatter into all kinds of pieces. But Tom says he believes in miracles. So the teacher looked at Tom and he said, All right, Tom, before I drop the egg, I want you to pray a prayer. And he says, I want you to pray. Your God, this is a true story, your God will keep that egg from breaking when it hits the ground. Tom sits there. He doesn't know what to do. Doubt begins to flood his mind. What is he to say? His class is looking at him. The teacher has challenged them. And then a quiet peace after turmoil has left his heart. Peace begins to flood in and he stands up and he says, all right, teacher, I will pray. So he has everybody bow their heads and he slowly begins to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that when my teacher drops the egg, that it will break into a hundred pieces. And Lord, I also pray that when that egg does fall to the ground and break, I pray, Father, by your spirit, that my teacher will drop dead of a heart attack right now. After a gasp by the classroom as large, they didn't know what to do. And Tom said confidently, and I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. And he sat down. The teacher looked at him. Tom looked back at the teacher. The teacher didn't know what to do. He looked at the egg and he said, all right, we're going to put the egg back in the refrigerator. Class dismissed. 
I don't know about you, but that man believed in the power of prayer far more than many Christians do, didn't he? How do we deal with issues of doubt? I will tell you, don't sit there and try to come up with every answer because we do have something called a faith. And we don't have all the evidence before us. But the Bible says we have the Word of God in our hands. And because of that Word in John 20, 30, and 31, it says that we have the ability to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And that that belief in the Bible that's in your hand will produce eternal life. And this is what we preach. This is our faith. Jesus Christ crucified, dead and buried. And that he rose from the grave. Let's look at what we have to learn from our text this morning. The first thing we see, if we want to combat the world's doubts, and in fact our own doubts about Christ's claims, three things must happen. Number one, we must develop a relationship. We must develop a relationship with a disciple who doubted. Now, we come to this man named Thomas. Now, there are several of the Lord's disciples that are well known. Peter, James, and John, and even Judas have had just tons of books written about them. We know all about those guys. But it's the others we don't know much about. And Thomas is one of them. There's, only, uh, there's less than 20 verses in the Bible about this guy named Thomas. There's not much written about him. And what we learn about this lesser-known disciple is not just that he's a doubter, because he gets a lot of bad press these days as the doubting Thomas, if you will. But we learn some things. I want to share just a little bit about him, give a biographical thing. We know very little about his early life, um, this Thomas. But we do know something about his name. The name Thomas is Aramaic for twin. The other name that he's given in the Bible is the name Didymus. Now, that word Didymus is twin in Greek. So apparently, Thomas had a twin. Whether it was a brother or sister, he had some sort of twin. Uh, and that's why they call him. They say, Tom, you're the twin. Now, we don't know who that person is, is, so we just assume that that's the case. That's his name. Now, there are some people and commentators believe that Thomas and Matthew, the apostle, were brothers. Just like James and John are always listed in the Scriptures together, so Thomas and Matthew are connected in that way as well. Again, we don't know that to be true or not, but that's what some uh, contend. Now, we also know that he's been given the name the Doubting Thomas. But more than being a doubter, we learn that Thomas is one who is a pessimist. His bigger problem isn't that he's a doubter, but that he's one who struggles with pessimism. Now, I know as I look out to the crowd, not all of you are optimists at heart. I've got one of uh, my cousins is a pessimist. He's always looking at the dark side of things. And maybe you're married to someone that's like that. You say, man, look, dear, it's a beautiful day. And she comes back to you and says, ah, there's a cloud in the sky. Not as good as it used to be. You know, it's like, the, I think it's Southwest Airlines commercial. The two ladies are laying out trying to get some sun. And they're in Florida. And the sun is out and beautiful. Then a cloud goes by. And it kills the sunlight for about 20 seconds. And then it goes across. And the lady says to the other one, she says, well, weather yesterday was better than it was today. Meaning that only in Florida is there perfect weather. But we are pessimists by nature many times. And there are many, you're leaders within the church, you're serving and doing great things, but there is a part of you that is just negative about things. And that's how God made you, and that's all right. Just as it's okay to be positive about things, there is some of us that are just negative. I like to call you the people, you're like Eeyore from uh, the, uh, what's that guy, Winnie the Pooh. Remember good old Eeyore, the little donkey, oh, woe is me. And, you know, Winnie would be all excited, and I never thought I'd use Winnie Winnie the Pooh in a sermon illustration, but I am, so live with it. And he just was negative all the time. Everything bad is going to happen. That's what Thomas commentators believe is like. But we see more about him than just his personality. There are three things we can pull from Scripture. Number one, in John 21, verses 1 through 3, we learned that at best he was a fisherman, at least a hobby of fishing. 
In John 21, 1 through 3, it says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but they caught nothing. We'll look at that passage next week. But we see something about him. Most commentators believe that Thomas was one of the fishermen, like many of the disciples, who came from that life to be a fisher of men. Next we see he was a follower of Christ. He was a follower of Christ in Luke 6, 13-16. This is what it says. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated as apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. Thomas is one of the twelve. And they say, well, all right, but that's huge. Because tradition tells us that most of the disciples, all of them, in fact, in, except for John the Apostle, who's writing this gospel, died a horrific death. We learn that Thomas, through history, and we're not sure of this, but this is what history tells us, that Thomas went to the Far East and he had an incredible missionary impact in the area of India. In fact, there's a huge cathedral in India today that signifies the great witness of Thomas the Apostle. But we find out that he died as the persecution came as a result of standing for Christ. This pessimist, God takes to do great things and use them in a powerful way. So for those that live and, and kind of side on the negative side of things, don't think that God can't use you. But just like Thomas, who doubted and was a pessimist at heart, God used to do great things as a result of what Christ did through him. But we also see that he wasn't just a follower, but he was devoted. In John 11:16, this is under this follower of Christ. In John 11:16, it says, Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of them, Let's go with him that we may die with him. You remember the story in John chapter 11? Jesus is going to go uh, and heal Lazarus. And he's going to go in an area where the uh, chief priests and uh, the Pharisees are going to find him and where they're at. And they're going to kill him. And Thomas says, let's go with him that we may die with him. Now, there is a kind of pessimism in that attitude. But what you've got to understand is that Thomas was willing to go and die. The same one who doubted is the same one who was willing to die with his Savior. One final thing we see is that Thomas was focused. He was focused on finding answers. In John chapter 14, Jesus talks about that fam famous passage. He says, And I go to prepare a place for you. And because I'm going, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. He says, You know, in John 14, 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And I'm wondering whether the disciples are sitting there and just kind of saying, all right, just follow along. He's going off again on this place. Don't know where he's going. Let's just act like we know where he's going. Yeah, Jesus. Amen, Jesus. You're going to prepare a place. Right on, Jesus. We're going with you. Yeah, we know where it's at. And Thomas is sitting there going, what are you talking about, guys? This is my translation. Out by Zondervan in October. Tyndale wouldn't pick it up. Talk to Kevin about that one. Um, so my translation says, okay. Thomas looks around and he says, wait a minute, what are you guys talking about? Look at what he says. If you turn there, John 14, 5, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus is sharing. Nobody else brings anything up. Now, we always highlight that Peter is the one who always says the first thing after Jesus has talked. But here we see twice two declarations from Thomas that he speaks before anybody else does. And he asks the question, I don't know where you're going, Jesus. Tell me where you're going. I want to go with you, but I don't know what you're talking about. Kind of that probably dumbfounded look our children have when we ask them to do something. So here's the amazing thing about Thomas. He gives a bad rap, but I will tell you, there's some great things we can learn from him. Because we see that he was a great man of faith. But how did he get there? We look at our next part because the first part of that journey on how he got there didn't work well for him. 
We see, secondly, if we want to be delivered from our second guessing and be able to have hope and uh, confidence in the, what Christ has shared, then number two, we must defend. We must defend against the risks surrounding the downward spiral of doubt. You want to not doubt as a believer? Then be careful of the risks that come when you begin to doubt. As one views this passage, we see a downward spiral take place in John chapter 20. We see Thomas beginning to struggle with this abyss of uncontrolled doubt. But where does that get him? It gets him nowhere. And the question we must ask is, how did he get to a place where he would demand of Jesus to see his hands and his side? How would a Christian get to that place? You would think if we profess Christ, if we've hung out with Jesus for three years, we would get to a place that we wouldn't doubt. There are some people here today, and I've talked with you, who have said, I can't be a Christian because there are true doubts in my mind about certain things. I'm not even sure at times I'm saved. How can I be a Christian? Well, how did Thomas get there? And by learning how Thomas got there, we learn some things. We see three forces that move Thomas to the place where he's at. First of all, we see, and just again on the side of your outline, write this down. We see Thomas struggle with despair. He struggles with despair. Thomas, like the rest of Jesus' followers at this point, are struggling with the traumatic events that they have seen in last week. They've seen the guy that invested three years with them who loved them in a way that nobody else could. And what do they see? They see him hung on a cross. Think about your greatest friend. The one who's taught you all that you know. And then that friend tells you that he is going to usher in the kingdom of God. That He is the Messiah, the One that is going to bring eternal life here on earth. He's the promised One, the Messiah. And then you watch Him on some Friday afternoon being hung on a cross. Just like Thomas, we would be filled with despair. Not only was Thomas's friend gone, but now Thomas's way of life was gone as well. His purpose for living was gone. No doubt there are many here today who have suffered a loss of a friend, who have suffered a loss of a loved one, who have suffered some sort of loss that has brought you to a place of despair. Be careful, because that's where doubt begins. There's a second thing we see, and that is disappointment with God. There's disappointment with God. Like all of Judas's, I'm sorry, all of Jesus' disciples, except for Judas Iscariot, all of them were godly men. All of them were handpicked by God to do great things in the area of leading the church. And as a result, I'm sure that Thomas, just like the rest, was a godly man who God would use to do great things on his behalf. It's amazing, I'm sure, that during that three years that each of the disciples, including Thomas, would display some great amount of devotion to Jesus. So here's this guy. Why does he become disappointed with God? Well, like most of the disciples, they expected Jesus to take over the Roman government. And he doesn't. And they don't understand it. And I'm sure that after Jesus dies, the disillusionment, when Jesus is crucified, would only bring us to a place of disappointment. I'm sure he was wondering, what happened to this Jesus? The one who was supposed to take care of all the issues for Israel. He's now hung on a cross and now he's buried in a grave. There are many here today, quietly, who are disappointed with God. Who are sitting there right now and saying, but Tim, I have prayed for a particular prayer request and it has not come to fruition. I have prayed that God would heal me in this ailment that I have and God hasn't done it. I have asked God to do this or that to resolve this issue and it hasn't taken place. And what do we say? We're disappointed with God. That's not something we readily admit because that's not something that would be readily accepted in the church. But there have been times I can assure you that your preacher has been disappointed with God. And I've gotten upset and I say, God, why? Why do you do these things? You say you're before me and who can be against me? Seems like the whole world is against me, God. How can you write that in the book of Romans? And we become disappointed with God. 
I will tell you, before you become disappointed with God, one thing I've learned is make sure you're disappointed with God on the right terms. They were disappointed with God because they had a picture of God and what He was going to do. They thought that Jesus was going to live towards their dreams and their desires. They wanted Rome to be taken over for Jesus to establish this political power. But we know that Jesus did not come to take over the Roman government, but He came to seek and to save that which was lost. The things you're praying for may not be the will of God. Don't become disappointed with Him. Learn what the will of God is. Paul prayed at the beginning of one of his letters that we would know the will of God and find encouragement as a result of that. If you're disappointed with God, look to His Word and find out what He has to say about that situation. Next we see that as he is going through this disappointment and this despair, there's one final thing that drives him to doubt, and this one's very important, and that is we see that Thomas distanced himself from the Christian community. In John 20, do you notice that it says, John tells us, that Thomas is not with the disciples. Other than Judas Iscariot, the other ten seemingly are together. Where's Thomas? Well, if we know what we know about his personality, he's probably sitting somewhere huddled up singing, Woe is me. Woe is me. What am I going to do? Everything is falling apart. It always turns out this way. I told all the sons of Zebedee, I told them they're gonna, it's gonna happen this way. Things aren't gonna turn out. And look what happened. It came just as I thought it would. Probably negative sitting somewhere. We don't know. But we know it's not around. Now why is that so important? Because here in our generation of church attendance today, we think that church attendance is just purely an optional thing. And we say, well, you know, if nothing else is going on and Junior doesn't have a volleyball game and and we don't have to take so-and-so, and one of the things that I don't like at all, if so-and-so doesn't have a birthday party, because we have all these birthday parties we have to go to, then we'll make it to church. Or if we wake up in time after our night of being out on Saturday night, we'll, we'll get to church. Thomas's biggest issue, and the reason why he lived in a state of doubt for one week about the resurrection, was because he wasn't with the disciples in Christian community. I read a message this week from a little Baptist church on this passage, and the message was why you shouldn't miss Sunday evening service. Of course, you know this is Easter Sunday night. And of course, he was giving this feel that we should have Sunday evening services because you never know when the good Lord may come back. And he was giving us great. He was saying that the good Lord's going to come back on a Sunday night because that's when he appeared first to his disciples. So why wouldn't he appear on a Sunday night? So let's make sure we're together. It's a great little little thing. I'm not sure it was in the text, but we'll give him some. I, I won't be here tonight. Distance from. The Christian community. You know, if you struggle with doubt, frankly, if you struggle with anything, the best anecdote to living this Christian faith is living it out in community with other people. I will tell you that every week we are missing more than 25% of what we would call regular attenders to this church. I look out and I sit here and I say, where are all the women today? Just kidding. We're missing people all the time. Of the 100% of people that come and call Village Bible Church their home, 50% of the adults are in Sunday morning, Sunday school class. Now you say, well, hey, I'm in Christian community. I come to worship service. Can I assure you of something? Once and for all, this is not Christian community. If you think Christian community is standing up, singing, praying, listening to me rant and rave for 45, 50 minutes, that ain't community. Community is involving yourself and your life with other people. So why do we have Sunday school class? It's not just to have a, another follow-up from the sermon, but it is to create another environment or an atmosphere for you to hang out with people, for your doubts to be taken away. Then we have an opportunity. We have about 65% of our uh, people are involved in small groups. We need to be involved in community. But it's not just formal community. It's getting together with people. I hope that you find friendship, that you find true community here. But I will tell you, it means going and being a part of that community even when you don't want to. 
understand this. If Thomas is with his brothers, the disciples, if he's there, there's no doubt. Why? Because he would have seen Jesus like the other ten would have. But he missed it because he was absent. Where's your doubt? Where's your struggle today? I would tell you the answer is found as we open the Word and as we see Jesus together. Is there a place for private worship and private study? Absolutely. But it's done within a body of community. The reason why we come together on Sunday mornings is to get together and talk about what God has done in our life. When was the last time you came to church, worship, and just go and hold a cup of coffee with someone and say, Hey, Bob, you know... Let me tell you, I was reading through the book of Nehemiah this week, and God changed my life, and I've been praying about this certain issue. When was the last time we talked about that? That is Christian community. I'm all for talking about the Cubs and talking about that other team's no-hitter last week. We talk about all those things. But make sure that your priority is about how do I grow my brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about it for a moment. If the first thing Thomas would have heard when he walked into that room was this. Hey, Thomas, this is Peter talking. Did you hear about what's going on in Jerusalem? The Jerusalem priests just won the softball league championship. That's not what they said. What they say, we've seen him. We've interacted with this Jesus. Our Christian community must be talking about the interaction with our Savior. Don't ever miss that. That's why we're here together. So what's the downward spiral that takes place? Very quickly, we see a couple things take place. First of all, we see that because of this downward spiral, we see desertion takes place. Look at John 20, verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Look down to verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them now seven days later. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I want you to know three times in this short passage, Jesus uses this, this phrase, Peace be with you. Why? Because when we are walking away from God, we will not be at peace. These guys deserted Jesus. Why? Why did the disciples take off and why did they scatter? The reason why is doubt affected every one of the disciples except for maybe John. John's the only cross. John's the only one that seems to be hanging out in a public viewing area of what took place with Christ. What happened to the rest of them? They take off. Why? Because they doubted that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. But even above that, our friend Thomas, he's not even with them when they're huddled together, gathered behind locked doors, fearful for their own lives. But look at what happens next. Not only does it create desertion, it also brings forth a delay. A delay, verse 24 and 25. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When you allow your doubts to take over your life, you're going to miss opportunities with Jesus Christ. When you have doubts, the last thing I want to do when I doubt things in my faith is to open the Word of God. The last thing I want to do is hang out with believers because we live in this society that doubts are bad, that doubts are sinful. I know you've got doubts. There are things I just don't understand about the Christian faith and I'm not sure what to do with them. Don't push those away. Don't walk away and live in the solitude of those questions, but bring them. And begin to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you to see the light. Thomas isn't there. Now, many scholars believe that Jerusalem was buzzing with all kinds of commotion as a result of what had happened. No doubt that Jesus had been taken away at best. His body was gone. But we find the disciples behind closed doors, locked up. They're wondering where their Jesus is. They're not sure what to make of this. And yet Thomas has to wait a full week. Why does that happen? Because he's probably feeling sorry for himself. He's probably feeling like everything's not going his way. And look at what happens next. Look at verse 25. It says, So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But look at what he says. He said to them, Unless. You know what will happen if you allow doubt to continue in your heart, resonating in your heart? It will lead you to a place of denial. You're going to deny things. He says, 
unless. Here they all proclaim that Jesus is alive. They all say, we've seen him. These aren't people that haven't uh, hung out with Thomas. He knows who these guys are. And they say, we've seen Jesus. We were freaking with you last week too about it, but now we've seen him. And he says, you know what? I don't believe you. We can get to such a place of doubt in our mind that we won't even listen to our brothers and sisters. We won't even listen to the Word of God because it will have fallen on deaf ears. He denies. He says, unless. Finally, we see down the slippery slope that it brings us to a demand. A demand. Look at what he says in verse 25. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. This is when you get to the bottom, the lowest of lows, is when you begin to demand God. I've been there before. I've been there some years ago. An issue was happening in my life. And I demanded that God take care of the issue. If you are God, then you will take care of this. God, you say that you know that you will not give me more than I can handle. This is more than I can handle. So help me. Help me get beyond it. If you're God, you'll take care of it. This is what Thomas does. It leads him to a place to demand from the almighty God of creation. He says, I'll believe if this happens. But here's some good news. What does Jesus do? Jesus appears seven days later. Does he come in? Say, all right, I've seen all of you guys. Where's Thomas? Thomas, come here. All right, Thomas, you and I need to have a powwow. Hey, dum-dum. Hey, stupid. Didn't I tell you that I was going to do this? Come on, man. Are you that uh, out of, out to lunch? Are you forgetting what I said? How could you doubt, Mr. Negative? This, every time, you know, every time we wanted to go to Galilee, you're always like, I don't want to go to Galilee, Mr. Negative. This is a problem. Do you hear anything of that with Jesus? No. You know, we suffer and deal with sin. The thing that I am so encouraged by is my idiosyncrasies, my inadequacies. God doesn't come and just begin to nail us with things that tell us how bad and stupid we are. But look at what he says. He says, here, look at my hands. Here, look at my side. Touch. He comes right to our need. He doesn't sit there and tell him, you're a dummy because you had to have this happen. He says, hey, I know where you're at. I know where you're struggling. Here, touch him and believe. Jesus is coming before you right now in your doubt, in your skepticism, and He's saying, I want you to believe here. You will never see Jesus say, you dummy, stupid. He'll meet you where you're at. Well, how do we get there? How do we get to that place? Let's close with this point. We see a couple things. And that is, first of all, if we want to eliminate or be delivered from our second guessing, we must deepen our resolve to disarm the doubts of life. In regards to a resolve, we've got to resolve to do some things. The first one is, if you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with skepticism, first of all, draw close to Jesus. Find yourself drawing close to Jesus. The only way Thomas's doubts were going to be alleviated, the only way they would have been disarmed, remember, what is he doubting? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only way they would have been taken care of is if he saw the resurrected Lord. It means close proximity. You want to get rid of your doubts in your minds today? You start getting close to Jesus. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. He says, if you lack wisdom... Ask, and I will give. And my favorite part, without finding fault, it will be given to you. But it says, do not doubt. Ask God for wisdom. Ask Him. And He says, I'll give it. I won't even find fault in you in asking wisdom. And He says that you will be established upon the wisdom of God, He says in another part of the Old Testament. Draw close to God. Jesus says when He drew close to them each time, peace be with you. Do not be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, giving your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind 
in Christ Jesus. Where are you anxious? Where you find yourself doubting or worrying? Give it to Jesus. He says the peace of God, which will blow your mind, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The second thing we see, and that is believing the demonstrations given to us. Believe the demonstrations that are given to us. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus gave him the demonstration he was looking for. But what about us? What about us? What do we do? What demonstrations do we see? There's a demonstration that is so important for us to understand and know. Let's say that my brother Ray here struggles with doubting the changing power of God in his own life. And let's say Ray says, you know, I just don't see God changing my life. So I don't believe God is one who can change people's lives. How can we help Ray? Well, before we get anywhere, we need to call him to draw close to God. But number two, what we need to do is allow him to see life change in our own lives. We need to go and say, I was blind, but now I see. Ray, I didn't understand this element of Scripture, but now I do. Ray, I don't understand why God allows good things to happen to bad people, but this is what happened with me and the peace of God which transcends all understanding guarded my heart. The demonstrations that we need to have, that Thomas needed to see, was the life change in his friends, the disciples. They went from grief to joy, and that should have changed the heart of Thomas. Next, we see that doubt is disarmed by declaring our allegiance to God. By declaring our allegiance to God. Thomas said to him, after he sees that, he says, my Lord and my God. He says, Jesus says to him, blessed, uh, blessed, I'm sorry, because you have seen, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's speaking of us, that last passage, part of the passage. But here's the thing. In verse 28, Thomas declares, listen to me, the greatest affirmation that any disciples up to that point have done. He says, you're my Lord and you're my God. He goes from being a doubter to one who is fully devoted to Jesus Christ. When you doubt, go to God and say, I don't understand it, but the basis of your God, godness of who you are, the attributes are not based on my perception of who you are. You are God. I am not. Let's settle that. And your prerogatives are to do whatever you desire. It's not based on what I view you as. We could talk about who the greatest basketball player in the world is. I'd say Michael Jordan. Others would say Dr. J. Others would say Kobe Bryant. That's based on our perspective and our vantage point. But God is God no matter how you feel on any given day. So declare it to him. Tell him that he is God and he is your God. And finally, let's close with this. Devote yourselves to the word of God. Look at verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Understand this, and I'm gonna, I was telling Ray about this, I'm gonna walk where angels fear to tread very quickly. The book that you hold in your hands is a, not a, a, a book that will take care of every ailment that you have in your life. I believe in sola scriptura, solely scripture, that is our authority. But understand this, a lot of people have this perspective that the Bible will answer every question that you have. I'll ask you this. If you've got to change your muffler today, is the Bible going to tell you how to do that? No. Some people wish it did. If you get lost on the Eisenhower Expressway going into Chicago, your wife isn't going to say, hey, honey, maybe we should stop and read Proverbs, try to find out where we're at. The Bible is complete when it comes to all elements of faith and the practice of that faith. But understand the Bible's limitations. There are things that the Bible does not say. Okay, so that when people say, well, well, does the Bible say this? Does the Bible say that? And you can say with great assurance, no, it doesn't. But you can take them to this verse that says these things are written that you may believe the Bible is God breathed, fully inspired, breathed by God. And it's fully usable and effective. 
for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. Righteousness that produces eternal life. These things have been written. So what should we be doing when we doubt? Even if our doubt is not answered per se by the biblical text, we need to go to the Word and say, Thus saith the Lord. I don't need to know everything. I don't need to have every jot and every tittle of every letter taken care of. But I will do this. I will read the Word that is able to save me from my sins and bring me to an eternity with Christ Jesus. Where do you doubt this morning? In the quietness of your heart, start asking God the tough questions that you want to ask Him. And say, Lord, I doubt. I just don't have the assurance of faith in this area. And give it to God. Give it to God knowing that He is your Lord and your God. And draw close to Him. And then pull from His Word. Make that your desire this week and let's pray. Father God, as we close this part of Your Gospel I pray that, Lord, we would come to a realization that there are going to be seasons of doubt in our life. And, Lord, while doubt is not a sin, just like anger is not a sin, you command us when we're angry not to sin in our anger. Lord, I pray that we will not sin in our doubt. Father, I pray that, just like Thomas, that we would learn from his life and that we would pursue the path that He had. Father, I pray for those that are down that downward spiral right now, that path of moving more and more closer to disbelief than doubt. And Father, I pray that You would move in our hearts. Father, we would draw near to You. Father, I pray that we would be a part of that Christian community that can help us in our seasons of doubt and despair. Father, I pray that we'd be a people who would have many times on our tongue our intimate relationship with Jesus so that we can help demonstrate to others around us that you are, in fact, who you said you were, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We love you and we praise you and give this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.